Colossians 3, verse 22 through 25. Paul writes, he says, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as man-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. We'll even go to the next verse in chapter 4. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful. We come before you. We enter into your gates this morning, God, with thanksgiving. It's all we bring, God, people who have been so loved, so pursued, as we sang, God, by such an incredible God. So, God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that as we stand here today, we are those that you have pursued and you have found and you have rescued through your son, Jesus, Lord. We do pray that if there is anyone here who hasn't experienced that rescue, that, Lord, you would rescue them, Jesus. And Lord, we're certainly here um, to hear from you. So we believe, God, with, as, as Luke prayed, with expectation as we come before you, God, you want to speak to us even more than we want to hear from you. So what we truly pray, what we need to pray, God, is um, that you would give us ears to actually hear what your spirit wants to say to us. Can we just do that as a church for a minute? Can you just pray in your own heart right now and just ask God to give you ears to hear what he wants to say to you today? Speak to us, Lord. So God, we give you these prayers. Thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, speak to us now as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Then have your seats. Well, the title of my sermon this morning is The Nine to Five Gospel. The Nine to Five Gospel. Um, so here in this section of Colossians, and by section I mean the second half of Colossians, as is typical for most of Paul's writings, Paul is, after spending two chapters, chapters one and two, explaining the incredible reality of what Christ has done for us and what God has done through Christ, what we call the gospel. That's usually where Paul begins his letters. He lays a foundation so that we understand the, the truths about who God is and what he's done before we try to do anything. It's valuable to God for us to have a good foundation. And so Paul began the first two chapters with the reality of the gospel, which can sometimes be just an overused, underdefined word. By the gospel, we mean that Christ has died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to, our, according to the scriptures. And that is good news, not just because it happened as an event in history, but as Jesus died, as Jesus was buried, and as he rose, God was accomplishing something for us that we could never accomplish for ourselves, namely, God was rec rescuing us, God has rescued us through Christ, from the brokenness of life apart from him. Anybody in here have ever come face to face with the brokenness of life apart from God? Yeah. 
um, in many forms and fashions. Maybe this week you had one of those days that reminded you of the brokenness of life apart from God. It comes in many forms and fashions. Nonetheless, the gospel is the answer to the brokenness, where Jesus rescues us from sin, and that's what Paul begins with in chapters 1 and 2, what the good news of what God has done in Christ, how, how Christ has rescued us from that broken state apart from God. But then what Paul does is he often, he'll finish his letters, some of his epistles, here in Colossians, for example, and he'll begin to describe what life looks like now in the gospel with that hope, and we can understand it this way. It, Paul begins to describe what it looks like to live out of the gospel in our lives. So the gospel comes into our lives as a fresh breeze in a hot summer South Florida day, cool breeze. There's a cool breeze I caught the other day at the seed. It was like boiling hot. I was, you know, like first, second out of the house. I was sweating everywhere, and like it started, you know when it kind of starts to rain, all of a sudden, like, where did that breeze come from? Where am I living all of a sudden? Is this California? No, it's not. Close, but not, not even. California's much better. But anyway, you know, that cool breeze comes in, and it's like, that's the gospel. It comes in, and it rescues us from our darkness, from our state of staleness and brokenness. But the gospel comes to us in such a way that it transforms everything about us, Right? You know, it's the idea of, like, getting hit by something impactful. You know, if, if it's been said this way, if you could get hit by a train and not be the same, how could you ever be hit or impacted by God and ever be the same? You can't be. God is much more powerful than a train. The gospel, the Bible says this, is the power of God, what, unto salvation, so the gospel comes into my life. It rescues me from my brokenness. And then what God does by his spirit is he leads me to live out of the gospel, this transformed life. And we are all in this beautiful, messy journey together experiencing that. Amen? A nice, beautiful, messy journey together being transformed from glory to glory. Sometimes it feels from setback to setback. And then God is continuing to be faithful. We're in this journey together. And the Apostle Paul here in this section of Scripture, what he's been doing is describing all the different areas of our lives that God is transforming by his Spirit. And here, we see a specific focus on how the gospel transforms the way, listen to this, that we see and approach our vocations, our vocations, our work. Last week, we looked at how the gospel transforms how we live in and under authority. And then here in these verses, if we look at them specifically, we see that the gospel changes and transforms how we approach my nine to five. It's the nine to five gospel. Let's understand it this way. It's not just the Sunday morning gospel, right? which is not a connection that a lot of us make. Um, a lot of us, when we think about the Christian faith, we often, we reduce it, or we, what has been called, we compartmentalize it. You ever heard that phrase? So it's like we have God, and God is about the spiritual stuff, right? Like seek night stuff. Yeah, that's God, right? Praying, fasting, singing, seeking, showing up at 8 a.m. to help set up church, you know, tithing, like all the things that we would go spiritual category, and we go, that's my God box. Here's my God box. And then we kind of have our family life box. And then we have our other compartment. It's our social life and maybe our hobbies. Uh, and then over here, well, my career, you know, it's just my career, whatever. And we can sort of think that way about the gospel. We can think that way about God. No wonder there are so many half-hearted nominal Christians in the church today. 
Because who would be passionate about something that only affects one day of my week? I mean, I in some ways, I understand. In a lot of ways, I understand why there's such lukewarmness in the church today. Because who's going to be passionate about something that only has to do with two hours on a Sunday morning? Or maybe my little devotion time in the morning. Okay, let's get six hours a week. Let's at least say that. But how many of us know most of our lives are not spent here singing kumbaya? Most of our lives, real life, as we could say, is tomorrow around that 2 p.m. mark. You're just done with Monday. And Sunday was great. Good sermon, Andrew. Great worship. But I'm at Monday now. I can't go back in time. I could hopefully look forward to Sunday. But listen, that was not the way that God intended this thing to be, was it? Just living on Sunday. Now, we need to get together with God's people. We need to stir one another up because we get stale, right? To love and good works. But we don't live Sunday to Sunday. The gospel is more than Sunday morning. The gospel comes into our lives and doesn't transform just the little parts of us that we like to control. The gospel, like a freight train, it impacts our life and it transforms everything. It's the nine to five gospel. It's not just the Sunday morning gospel. So Paul makes this connection here that a lot of us don't make, connecting our faith, our relationship with Christ to our vocations. What if we understood it that way? What if we looked at our week and we said, man, church is over, but I can't wait now to experience God this week in my work. I began to, it's rain, guys. It's this thing that falls <laughs> from clouds. I could do a sermon on photosynthesis next week, okay? Um, but what if we began to think that way? We didn't live for Sunday, but we saw God as calling me into Monday with the nine to five gospel. So we get this idea, this transformative work of the gospel, not just to affect certain parts of my life, but the whole life. Um, so that's what Paul does here. You know, we see Paul speaking about how the gospel applies to how I do my work. It matters to God. And right now, let's just stop for a second. You're going, um, Andrew, I get that concept, but I don't see that in Colossians 3. You're talking about a vocation, and I'm pretty sure Paul here was just talking to these things called I don't know, slaves? Like, that's not, I mean, sometimes I feel that way, but that's not my job. Like, that sounds a little harsh. Where are you seeing vocation here? This is definitely one of those passages of Scripture that a lot of people can have some trouble with if you read it at face value without um, doing one of the most important things when you read the Bible, which is you read the whole thing. And when you read the whole account of Scripture, you get some background and some history, though this might catch us off guard to see Paul writing to Christian servants and slaves and us thinking that that's a vocation but in that culture here's thing we need something we need to understand in that culture slavery as broken as a system as it was it was a much different institution than what we may think of today when we hear the word slavery um, in that culture when, when we see the word bond servants and we see this institution that was around that predated christianity what we should think about is not so much what we know of often which is some racial oppressive injustice, what we should think of instead when we read this in the Bible is a broken, a very broken vocational institute. That's what it was, a vocational institute. Broken, very broken, owning people is not the way to go. Amen? <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, but listen, a vocation nonetheless. This is the culture that Paul is writing to. Did you know that in the first century, the first century church, it was filled with bondservants? Bond servants flocked to the Christian faith because of the value that they were given. 
You see, the early church filled with this dynamic, this broken institution um, that, let me just give a few points about the culture back then in slavery. First and foremost, the slavery that we see here, the bond servanthood, the indentured servanthood that we see here of a servant to a master, number one, was not based on race. So we're not talking about racial discrimination that's based on nationality or color of skin. Um, there's no kidnapping involved here where you're forced to be against your will someone's slave in the middle of the night or you're, you're taken across the sea to be a slave. That, that's not the idea here. In fact, many people would actually, in this culture, they would sell themselves as slaves so that they could pay off their debts to provide for their families. They would get a house to live in. They would get food. Uh, this was something that many people would willingly subject themselves to, a broken system. Like if someone offers that to you, you should say, let's not do that, okay? But nonetheless, a vocational system. You had doctors who were servants. You had politicians who were servants. You had lawyers who were slaves of someone else. So we're talking about a really common vocational institute that wasn't based on slavery. It wasn't based on kidnapping, nor was it permanent, was often to pay off some kind of debt. Uh, in fact, even in that culture, these slaves, they had rights. They had rights. They could sue their masters, you know, if they didn't get their paycheck or something, you know? Like, that's the culture that we're talking about here. Now, let's stop for a second and just, as we understand this, right, a racial, not a racial oppressive injustice, but a broken vocational system. Um, I want to read this commentary by David Guzik, who said this about slavery in the Bible. He said this, he says, though we see in Scripture the, bro bro the broken vocational institute that is slavery, no one can ever blame Christianity for slavery. It was a universal practice that predated both Christianity and the Jewish nation. Instead, one should see that the abolition of slavery has come largely from Christian people and biblical impulses. We know that a lot of people used, during the African slave trade, people used the New Testament, verses like this in Colossians and verses like what we find in Ephesians to call slaves to obey very cruel masters. That's a twisted reading of scripture. Right? We need to remember that a Bible verse out of context um, can be very destructive. Remember Satan when he tempted Jesus? What did he tempt him with? He tempted him with what? Scripture. It's not just good to go, I know a verse, so I'm going to take it to mean this. It's understanding the full counsel of God's word. And over history, Christians who have taken God's word as the word of God and not making it what they want it to be, we see that over history that it's primarily been Christians and the Jewish nation who have led these abolitions of slavery, um, not from any other major religion and certainly not from secularism. So, secularism. so what's funny today is you have kind of the secular world that looks on at the Bible and goes, the Bible condones slavery. But today there's about 27 million slaves that are being trafficked around this world for cruel purposes. And it's not secularism that's on the front lines of abolishing that slavery. It's predominantly believers who look at their lives and they go, I've been set free by Jesus. Slavery is miserable. The only person that we should be lorded over is Jesus, which brings us freedom. So we want to pursue that, right? And so that's what you see throughout history. In fact, uh, we'll, we're going to look at, there's actually a whole book in the New Testament called Philemon. It's got one chapter, okay? And the book of Philemon, if everybody goes, well, I mean, the Bible's all about slavery. What's up with that? There's literally an entire book in the Bible where Paul appeals to a brother of his in the faith, name, uh, in the faith named Philemon, and he encourages Philemon not to welcome his former slave Onesimus as a slave again, but welcome him as a brother. So we understand this. When we look at God's word, when we look at history, you cannot follow Jesus and condone slavery, okay? Okay. Um, Hopefully, you don't have to write that down, okay? Um, 
And certainly the Bible is not doing that here. The Bible is not condoning slavery. Remember the context here. We looked last week, right, at authority. And we looked at marriage and we looked at parenting. And what Paul is doing here is he's writing to households, is he not? He's describing as a Christian household, as a Christian living in a secular culture, how can we be a city on a hill, a city within a city that's a light to the, to the people around us? How can we orient ourselves and live our lives in our marriages as parents in our households? And here he says, in your vocations, which for a slave, your vocation operated within your own household. That's what Paul is getting at here. The way that the gospel, and this is often how God does this, and I think we read about this in our book, God Has a Name by John Mark Comer, that God often does uh, his works this way. God works in the people of God. He does a work in the people of God as a testimony to the people surrounding the people of God. It begins with God, it goes to the people of God, and then that leads to this great work that God does in the world. And that's what, obviously, that's what Paul is talking about here, and obviously that's what we want as a church, right? What God is seeking to do with your life is bigger than you. What God, what I believe God is seeking to do with our church, it's not about us. And how many churches are missing out on the thing that God wants to do because they're so preoccupied with the churchy stuff that's going to burn away, right? The stuff that doesn't matter. And so we need to be those kind of people that are mindful, going, God, work in our lives in such a way Impact the people of God in such a way that we are used by you to impact the city around us. Amen? That's what we want. God's work in us to come through us. And Paul is saying, here's a great avenue for God's work to come in and through it. It's the primary mission field that you live in Monday through Friday with your 9 to 5. And that's your workplace. That's your mission field. You know, think of it, Sunday is where you get filled up, but the reason why God fills you up here on Sunday or maybe Monday morning or Sunday morning when, or Tuesday morning when you spend time with him, God is filling you up because he wants to pour you out. He wants to pour out what he's putting in you into the lives of those around you. So here's what we see with Paul. Paul gives us, I think, a few observations about how the gospel transforms, how we see and approach our work. Write these down. Here's the first thing that Paul gives us about how the gospel transforms the way we see and approach our work as a light to those we work with. The first thing we see is that the gospel in Jesus, it gives us a new identity through which we see our work, first and foremost, as secondary. The gospel gives you and I a new identity. An identity is, is the means through which you define and understand yourself. Who are you is the question. Well, of course, apart from Jesus, because of sin, um, we've lost who we are. In losing who God is, we've lost who we are. It's been said this way, um, that most, uh, most of us, we have an identity, an identity crisis because we don't know who Christ is. A, a loss of who God is is a loss of who we are. And so today you have all sorts of interesting anthropologies, the study of humanity, all sorts of unique ideas about what human beings are are, and they are directly connected to what those people groups believe about who God is. And we also read this in John Mark Homer's book as well. I'm just going to be preaching from John Mark Homer's book this morning, okay? Um, this idea that you become like what you worship. And so if there is no such thing as God, if we're here by accident, a part of the primordial soup that just kind of has spilled over into this century, we're just here, that says a lot about who you are. 
Your origins says a lot about who you are. It says a lot about your meaning, your morality, your destiny, your purpose. And so with the loss of God comes a loss of identity. And Jesus has come to restore and bring clarity to that confusion so that you no longer have to wonder, who am I? Through Christ, you know the truth, and the truth sets you free to be who you were created to be. Amen? So Jesus comes, and Jesus reveals to us, oh, that's who God is. We discover from this God that we were made by his love in his image. So every single human being, despite economic status, despite gender, despite race, every human being has been made in the image of God. Dignity, value, and worth. It's a sense of identity. And then as a new believer, what happens is I am brought back into relationship with God and my identity that what I was created for is restored because there's a sense in which we don't know who we are because we're not truly who we were made to be, right? It's a sense in which it's kind of confusing. It's like, what are we? Well, we were made for God, but sin has jacked this whole thing up. So Jesus comes to bring us back to understand who we are in the image of God restores who we are in him, restores our identity. So we no longer see ourselves as some mysterious being on this earth, but we understand that in Christ, I have a secure identity that since Jesus has completed the work that he did on the cross, I know I have a completed identity. I am a son or a daughter of God, amen? So I'm in Christ, that's the big idea. And so that's what the gospel gives me. It gives me a new identity. Notice this, through which we see our work as secondary. What do I mean here? Well, notice Paul here. He's writing to a group of people who, in that culture, they had quite the identity and definition of being more on the lower end of the class system. Servants, kind of the low jobs. You know, it's like Mike Rose, uh, Dirty Jobs. Remember that show? You know, they had the dirty jobs. They weren't up there. They weren't high up. They weren't the greatest. They weren't the, the most elite of the day. Well, their identity was largely rooted in the fact that they were, well, they were slaves. It's a low job. It's a humiliating job. Imagine being a father and this inability to provide for your family, and now you and your family are owned by someone else. Come on, that's low. But notice that though here in Colossians 3, Paul is greeting these servants in verse 22 as bondservants, did you know that this isn't the first time he's greeted these people? No, let's go back to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verse 2, Paul's writing to the entire church of Colossus, and what does he say? To the, what? To the saints. To the saints. He doesn't say, to the saints, and then say hi to the bondservants, you know. Tell them I said, what's up? But I'm talking to the saints, right? No, Paul is writing to this church, and he is not a respecter of vocational status. We know this about God, that God doesn't have favorites, right? That there is no favoritism with God. There's no partiality with God. When God brings someone into his family through the gospel, he sees that child of his as filled with dignity and value and worth, not conditioned upon anything secondary about them. You see, we're all looking for, pri for the primary thing to define us. All of us are. Um, and the mistake is not that we get, you know, the definitions wrong. Like, a lot of us, we understand in a basic level who we are, you know. We're dads, we're sons, we're Americans, you know. Uh, we're, we're, we're male, we're female, we, we think of our gifts, 
we think of our background, we think of our age, we think of our height, we, we, we kind of use all these different things. You know, I'm a tall person, some of you guys got that gift, right? But we look at all these different things as, as a means to understand and define who we are. And it's not that you are less than those things, okay? It's not that, you know, Paul's being real. He's like, you're a bondservant, right? You have a dirty job. It's not that you're less than that definition, but the point that Paul would make to these bondservants is that you're certainly more than that position. Now, this is huge. For Paul to speak this way to a bondservant, to say that you are more. Now, this is not the first time he's done that. Go to Philemon. Remember I told you we'd look at that book? Go to Philemon. Go to the right. It's hard to find, okay? So you might need to, might need to get some sticky fingers there a little bit, okay? It's Philemon between Hebrews, uh, or rather between Titus and Hebrews. And in Philemon, as Paul is writing to this former slave owner, I want you to notice what he says to him about the bondservant that we talked about, this guy Onesimus. Look what he says. In Philemon, uh, it's chapter 1, it's a Bible joke, verse 8, Paul says, Therefore I thought I might be very bold in Christ to command to you what is fitting. Yet for love's sake I'd rather appeal to you, because such a one as Paul, the age, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, he's like, I've lived a little, I'm a little bit more bolder now in my old age. I love them, right? He's like, I've gone through some stuff, I'm not afraid to ask you hard questions. Verse 10. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but is now profitable to you and to me. Um, did I miss it? It's so good. I can't wait for you to see it. Hold on. Oh, it's the next verse. <laughs> Keep reading, Andrew. Okay, here's what it says. He says, I'm sending him back. You, therefore, receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, by voluntary. Okay, this, this is it here in verse 15. Check this out. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose. Notice this. That you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, no longer defined by his vocation, but look at this, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now this phrase, in the flesh, notice this. As we go back to Colossians 3, Paul is writing to these bondservants. He addressed them in verse 22, bondservants, but notice this, obey in all things your masters according to the what? Let's try this one more time. Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. So Paul is saying there is a real fleshly reality about you, but listen, the fleshly reality is not the full reality about you. Just as I said to Philemon, you are more than your vocation. So, so Paul tells Philemon, receive Onesimus is not just a slave. He says, this is what the gospel does, doesn't it? That former employee of yours that used to be beneath you because of the job he did, um, in Christ, Paul would say this in Galatians, there's no longer slave nor free. Those distinctions that you like to make about, around people to make their worth higher or lower doesn't work anymore. Because at the cross, it's been said, right? Everything's level. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are in desperate need of the, lo need of the loving, saving grace of God. Slave or free. Male or female. Jew or Gentile. Despite your background, it's level. So Paul says to, to, to Philemon, welcome Onesimus now, not just as your former slave, but now he's your bro. 
<laughs> now welcome him. Put your arm around him because now you're on equal ground in Christ. More than a slave. Um, we talked about how Jesus restores that identity. Restores that identity. And I think it's important for us to be reminded that you, you need to understand this. In Christ, you are more than what you do for work. Okay. You are way more than just a slave. You are way more than just an engineer. You are way more than just an analyst. You are way more than even all the other things that you like to define yourself with. Did you know that you're even more than what you are in your family? The truest thing about you and I is not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. It's that through Christ, I have a new identity. And so I love the way that Paul introduces himself, for example, in Romans 1. He says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Here's a, you know, Paul would introduce himself often. It's his way of saying, here's who I am, my identity, right? And he says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. This is huge. Called to be an apostle. We, we need to think this way about our vocations. Your vocation is not who you are. It, it may be what you're called to do, but it's not who you are. Because, listen, your vocation is temporary. And you've, you've felt that before, haven't you? If you've lost a job, if you had a business fail, if you experienced some tragedy, the big idea is it's not wise to build your house, the foundation of your identity, on shifting sand. And a lot of us do this. We make our identity what we're called to do rather than what Paul says. Listen, I'm called to be an apostle. God used Paul to do some awesome things, but he says, primarily, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Primarily. That's what the gospel has given me, a primary identity. That, that's where it all needs to flow from. That, that's first. So my relationship with God is, is priority. It's preeminent. And then whatever else he calls me to do secondarily, yeah, I'm called to it. I need to walk worthy of it, but I don't let my vocation define me. Because if I do, here's what happens. If your identity and your security in life is based on what you do for a living, that's who you are, okay? It's going to lead to one of two places that the gospel is supposed to rescue us from. But it's either going to lead you to great pride and arrogance when things go well, right? Because when you succeed in business and you're the man and it was, you close the deal, I close the deal. What's up, man? I'm taking everyone to lunch today, you know? It's like there's a tendency for your, and you kind of look down on the other employee. We talked about this last week a little bit about servant leadership. But listen, if that's your identity, your significance is dependent upon your success. So when you do well, here, here's where you are. But then when you lose your job, when the gift God's given you is maybe becomes incapacitated, you can't do the thing that like everyone knew you were good at. Who are you? Are you more than your vocation? In Christ, you absolutely are. And so the gospel gives us a new identity through which, first, the gospel leads us to see our work as secondary. Um, I thought I had to give a, just a quick ode and a nod to my boy, LeBron James. Um, cool? All right. In the words of LeBron, no. Um, LeBron James he, I, reminds me of this uh, Instagram post. I follow him every day. Um, I'm one of those likes. I just want you to know. Um, but... LeBron has had this campaign going uh, recently. It's kind of this statement that he, he writes on his shoes and he posts on, on Instagram a lot. And this idea, I love this idea. He says, I'm more than an athlete, right? It's the same idea. You know, yes, we all know, um, unless you're a hater, that LeBron James is the greatest basketball player in the world. He is, okay? It's okay. It's okay. People drink haterade. You can drink it. It's all right, all right? Truth hurts. But, but listen, I, 
if you guys have been studying the news lately, something really cool that LeBron James has done in Ohio is he just recently opened up a school called the I Promise School, where he's able to give um, education, free education to underprivileged kids that get free meals, free transportation. He's promised a free college tuition to all those kids that graduate. What a great example of someone who sees themselves as more than what they do. And, and if anybody had, like, the right, you know, to struggle with, like, finding their identity and what they do, it might be LeBron James because he's pretty good at what he does. But he's understanding I'm more than an athlete. Now, here's what I pray. I pray LeBron James comes to find that he's more than all the other things he thinks he is, right? I pray that for us as well, that we would see ourselves as more than just what we do, but the greatest truth about our identity is what Jesus has done for us. Amen for that? So also the gospel gives us, write this down, a new standard, not just a new identity, but the gospel, when it comes to our work, the gospel, as it gives us a new identity, we no longer find our identity in our work. We see it more of a calling. But, but the gospel also gives us a new standard through which we see our work as opportunity. It's not my identity, but it's certainly a God-given opportunity. All right, and so Paul says to these bondservants that he originally called saints, he says to these bondservants to obey your masters, but the big idea here is what? Is to do it in sincerity of heart. He says in verse 23, to do it heartily as unto the Lord. Paul is talking here about good, old-fashioned, hard work. Old-fashioned, hard work, okay? Um, which the gospel doesn't uh, lead us out of. We understand that we could try the hardest work in the world for God to love us, and despite how much sweat there is on our brow and blood there is on our knuckles, it won't work, okay? It's, it's a door we can never break through on our own. The good news is that God came through the door from the other side, right? That's the gospel. He opened it. It's, it's a one-way door that unlocks on the inside. We can never break through. God has come through that door. We can't work. We can't work for God to love us. Jesus accomplished the good work, didn't he? On the, he said, it is finished. He even said this, I have completed the work that my Father has given me to do. When you encounter the good news of that grace in your life, it will not lead to a lazy life. It won't. It can't. In fact, the way Paul says it, I love it, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is listing all the different apostles, right? Peter, James, all these guys. And he's like, yeah, they're pretty great. You know, they all saw the Lord when he resurrected. And he's like, but me, I was running from God. I was running from God and killing the people that I thought were opposing God, but they were actually on God's team. Oops, okay? And then God showed up. And he, despite my terrorist heart, and despite my dis disdain for the gospel of Jesus, God he softened my heart, and he rescued my life. That's a story of what? Grace, is it not? Definitely not works, as much as Paul tried. You know what Paul said about that grace? He says, that great grace that God has given me, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, I am what I am by this grace, my identity. But then he says... It's because of that grace, though, that it's led me to labor and work and toil and strive more than any of the other apostles. He calls the guys out. He's like, Peter, I work harder than you. you know? That's what God's grace has done. It didn't lead him to go, oh, it is finished. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm going to now sleep on the couch and pray for a job. Okay, Lord, I pray for dinner, too. I'm hungry. I'm going to open my mouth. You promise you will fill my mouth. Okay? Um, that's not a transformed life. The gospel produces this sense of, in fact, even 2 Corinthians talks about how repentance, it produces diligence, hard work. Because listen, as a new believer, as a Christian, you see what God, God has done for you on the cross. And the cross, what we understand about the cross is it's not just something that has been done for me at a distance, but the good news of how it's been done for me is 
is that it's also given me a new way to live my life. So um, I think it was uh, J. Oswald Sanders who said, it's the, the same cross that saves me is the same cross that slays me. The cross that saves me is the cross that slays me. I receive the gift of the cross, but now I live a cross-oriented life to die to self, to follow the way of Jesus, which gives me a whole new standard for how I do work. My standard now is not just working for the weekend. I know it's in your head right now, too, okay? I don't mean to. And everybody's working for the weekend. They are. But in Christ, we have a different standard, don't we? We have a different model. In fact, Jesus said this. I love this in John 5, 17. Here's our standard. Jesus said that my father is always working, and so am I. The Savior we follow was a carpenter. He was a hard worker. He saw the opportunity in work. He worked hard. He's our model. God the Father, always working. Now, we don't want to talk, we're not talking about workaholism. Gary Vaynerchukism. That's not what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about um, rhythm. You need rhythm, not balance. Balance is overrated. You need rhythm. You can't balance out work and rest. That's not how God did it. He didn't say balance it out. Five, five, you, know, you know, what is the math? Three and a half days of work, three and a half days of rest. No, there, there's rhythm. You rest as you work. You have rhythm in your life. You need friends in your life to come into your life and say, you are out of rhythm. You sound like Andrew if you're was playing the guitar. You need people to say that to you, all right? But in rhythm, as we follow God, we have work and we have rest and we, we follow him. He's our standard. He's our model. So we don't work ourselves to death so that our families don't ever see us, fathers, right? Well, I'm providing for them. You're missing some other things you need to provide, right? Nor do we sit on the couch watching Netflix all day, playing Fortnite, We have a new standard. We have a new standard. In fact, did you know that the Apostle Paul talks about, now if you think this is Andrew's like reading into these verses, I'll just let Paul speak to you, okay? Ephesians 4, Paul says this, Here's, and he's talking about the transformed life. He says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he might have something to give him who has need. You see the new standard? New standard. It used to be I would work, you know, when I could, to pay my bills, take care of my needs. Now, you should do that. You should work, certainly, to provide for your necessities, okay? God does want to provide for you, but do you ever think that God might want to provide for you through you? Through you working? Through you working hard? And that's what Paul is saying. First and foremost, this is a transformed life. I'm no longer just a taker, but I'm a servant, because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So I follow Jesus, and I'm a hard worker. But listen, the standard has a new opportunity to it, not just so that I can get... Making, we've talked about this, making, building wealth is a great thing. It's biblical. Laying it up for your children. Building wealth is good. Making money is a good thing. The Bible doesn't condemn making money. The Bible commend, uh, condemns loving money. It's the root of all evil, greed. And greed's a hard one, right, because no one can see it on the outside. There's some sins you're like, oh, they got that sin. There's the sin. Hey, sin. I mean, hey, Sally, you know. There's some sins we just wear more on the flesh. But greed's a tough one because greed, you know what greed is? It's the sin of the spirit, and it's subtle. And so, so do you, and it's justified. Oh, I'm just trying to catch a deal. I'm trying to catch a bargain here. Love of money, root of all evil. And so what, what, what God does through Christ, again, listen, 
as he gives us a new standard. Because remember, what was the opportunity that the Father was working for? Was the opportunity that Jesus went to the cross for, um, was it immediately opportunistic for Jesus? Who did Jesus go to the cross for? Others. Laid down his life for others. So here's how we start thinking about hard work. Not just a way for me to build wealth. The reason why it's good to make money is because the more money you have, the more money you can give away. It's, it's good to make money. It's bad to make money to keep money. And so God leads us to such a, a life that's reflective of a new standard. And so he's telling first these bond servants who they are in Christ. Then he tells them that they have a new standard, which is to work hard just as God works hard. And then write this next one down. This is huge. Uh, he also gives them, you need to see this. The gospel also gives us a new vision through which we see our work as valuable. This is huge. The gospel also gives us a new vision through which we see our work as valuable. Um, so we just talked about the importance of working hard to make money, which um, Tim Keller says, this incredible quote, his book, Every Good Endeavor. If you read his book, you'll find out that I cheated on this whole sermon, so don't read it. But in, Mark, in Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, he says this. He says, money is like breathing. You need it to live. But who in the world would want to live just to breathe? Money is like breathing. You need it to live. But who in the world would want to live just to breathe? Oh, it's a great purpose for life. No, it's not. It's a necessity, but it's not the primary purpose of your life. See, there's greater value to your work than just generating wealth. And a lot of us don't believe this. A lot of us don't understand this. Why? Because I don't work at a church. Or I don't work at a nonprofit. At least it's not, you know, that's changing the world. Now, I'm not saying they're not changing the world, but we create these categories, don't we? That's a world-changing job. Andrew, he's works at a church. He's a you know, ministry. Wow, changing the world. And then tomorrow, I'm going to go sit in my cubicle. I'm going to type away and answer some emails. Or I'm going to go to school and be a teacher. Or I'm going to go lead my sales team. Okay. The gospel gives us a new vision to see our work through. So that, listen... It's even a, I want you to see this. Paul, who's he speaking to here? Bond servants. And notice what he said in verse 24. Look at the second half. He says that you need to serve heartily. You need to work diligently. He says, because even though you're just a bond servant working in someone's house, he says this, that you serve in your bond servant job, you serve Jesus there. What? Now, I've read this growing up, and a lot of us right now, we go, yeah. Okay, you know, like we look at that verse and we go, okay, so what I need to do is I need to pretend, <laughs> right? I need to pretend when I go into work tomorrow that I'm serving Jesus. It's kind of like a game. Like here I am, you know, punching away at emails. Here I am teaching a class on mathematics. And here I am, I'm, I'm a designer, I'm designing and I'm serving Jesus. I just got to Pretend, all right, Jesus, I'm serving you right now with these snot-nosed kids. You know, it's like, we, we think it's this, this joke. Um, could it be that Paul is not being sarcastic? Could it be that Paul really believes that a bondservant serving heartily as unto the Lord at a master's house is actually serving Jesus, not just in a conceptual way, but in a literal way? Could it be that when you do your job, 
well. Despite it not being at a church and despite it not being a part of a nonprofit corporation, could it be that God is using you? Well, for some of us, we would go, never. Why? Well, because, come on, I mean, I was raised to understand, again, what's called the sacred and secular divide. We have things that are sacred, like world-changing, we call them spiritual stuff, working at a church and stuff. And then you have like the secular stuff, which is a part of this failed project called Earth, which is just all going to hell. And so um, the goal, we think this way, the goal is salvation. Here's how we think of salvation. We think of salvation a lot like how um, my brother-in-law, Roberta, and I thought about the treehouse that we built last year. It was a great treehouse, had a great structure to it, but someone gave us not nice wood for the walls. So it was this plywood that if you just sneezed on it, it's going to rot. Like, that's how bad it was. And so we built this great thing, but after about a year, you could just, like, slap the wall, and it would just, poof, you know, and fall down. Um, so when we had to move out of our home, the thought with this treehouse was, well, I guess I'll just salvage as much wood as possible. Keep what I can. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, he put man in the garden. He commissioned man to be busy about creating, to be busy about working, to use the raw materials that God gave in order to promote what's called human flourishing for the glory of God. This was God's vision. Well, that was a failed project, wasn't it? We kind of know what happened. Ate the fruit. Oops. And so we see the story kind of unfolding as this treehouse event where we just imagine, you know, salvation's kind of like God just salvaging some Christians, you know, the thing kind of rotted, so God goes, okay, I'll take you, I'll take you. You're only really useful if I can get you working at a church or something. I just got to sa- listen, the gospel is not a message of God salvaging the world. Did you know that the gospel is a message of God renewing the world? It's renewal. Have you heard that term? God makes all things new. We read Revelation 22, we see God makes all things new. He doesn't knock it down and salvage some pieces and kind of kick it to the curb. And if you're going, Andrew, I have a hard time with that, well, then let's stop listening to me and let's look at the life of Jesus. When Jesus came into this world, let's remember this, okay? Did Jesus only spend time doing uh, sacred things? Did you know that Jesus spent most of his life doing what we would call a secular thing? He was a carpenter. Do you ever think about that? You ever think about this fact? Okay. For about 17 years of Jesus' life, um, God worked a job. God had a nine-to-five. It's amazing. And so Jesus, first of all, the gospel is this, that God, he comes into the material world, right? And he fills that space, and he takes on a material job. And his job, it's to help make things better around him. God is caring for his world still through Jesus. And then when Jesus begins his ministry, do you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't go up to hungry people. He doesn't go up to sick people. He doesn't go up to blind people. He doesn't go up to naked people. He doesn't go up to homeless people and say things like, hey, um, I could feed you, but tomorrow you're going to be hungry. Here's the gospel. Get saved. Pray this prayer. Now, time out. Okay. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. How many of us know that? That there's a truth in that. But how many of us also know that there's this great danger in the church today to do what James tells us not to do? to see the material, to see material needs, to see people who are hurting, to see the brokenness of this world, and to say things like, God bless that situation, and then move on. 
That's not the gospel. Because what did Jesus come to give? He came to bring us the way of the kingdom of God. He taught us to pray, let God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What if you saw your job in that way? You see, in the church today, what we have is we have like, you know, the progressives. Let's say the progressive liberals. And what they love about Christianity is they love the kingdom vision. They love the equality. They love loving on the poor. They, they love the idea of, you know, the church actually being in the community. Get this around non-Christians. Huh? Novel, right? Spending time with non-believers. Being with the people that Jesus was with a lot. Magnetizing the sinners and the outcasts of society. That's the progressive vision. In a lot of ways, there's, there's a great appeal to that, especially for millennials who have grown up in church and all they've heard about was the king, but people who don't live according to the kingdom. And so you have all these people who love the, the kingdom, but they refuse to bow their knee to the king, and that's what they need. But on the other hand, you have so many Christians today, and they will, they will glorify King Jesus. They will sing, you are the only, you know, they'll sing it. You're the only king forever. You're my king. But how could we claim that Jesus is king and then not see our work for his kingdom as valuable? How can we claim Jesus is king, but I just work at a grocery store. The ways of the kingdom are connected to the king. This secular divide that Jesus doesn't allow us to make. He won't do it. So that we can now see our work with a new vision. So that even if you're a bond servant, you're serving Jesus. Tim Keller says it this way. I love this. He goes, so if you're a Christian airline pilot, what is the best way for you to be a Christian airline pilot? Answer. Land the plane. <laughs> in such a way that you can actually fly it again, too, right? Is it to put gospel tracks in the back of the seats? Is it to say every time we're landing, all right, thanks for flying aboard, John 316, for God's love the world. You know, like, okay? Now, do we want to represent the king? And should we ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? No. But here's what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. He said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you are going to, he didn't say witness. He said, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be a witness. You're going to live your life in such a way that people go, why are you so passionate? You're, you're a bondservant. Why are you doing your job that way? I have a different standard. I have a different model. I have a different vision for my job. See, I actually believe that when I do my job this way, that I'm following Jesus, who cares about my job, who cares about what it does for my community. And you're able to proclaim the king through living as a person of the kingdom. Amen? This is the vision. The vision that Jesus gives. I'll invite the worship team to come up here as we close out with this last one that's probably the most applicable um, as we move forward. Um, number four, write this last one down. The gospel also gives us a new motive through which we see our work as worship. A new motive. So I get this new identity, so work doesn't define me. But with that identity, I see that through the gospel, I have opportunity to work hard, and I see a new standard for how I work. And then when I go into my workplace, you know, I understand that I'm not hypothetically serving Jesus, but that I can actually be used by God to care for his creation. So God promises, for example, that he's going to feed the hungry. That he's going to clothe the naked. How does he do that? Through work, right? How does he feed the hungry? Farmers. How does he clothe the naked? Manufacturers. 
So work matters. God wants to use my work. It, it should also, by the way, let me just footnote, it should make us evaluate, too, what we do for a living. I just want to say that. It's possible that your vocation is counterproductive and maybe more destructive than constructive, and that's something for us to evaluate, right? But then lastly, what Paul says is when you get this new vision, you get this new standard, you get this new identity in Christ, your work It's no longer just about going to do your nine to five to fill the time, to punch in your time, to get your paycheck, to find some of you guys. The reason why you're pursuing your next job is to try to find yourself. You're not going to find yourself. You're not there. You're in Christ. Paul says now that you get this, this proper vision, this proper standard, this proper identity, he says when you serve, even as a servant, he says you can serve heartily as unto God. Your job? whatever it may be, your nine to five, it now becomes an opportunity for you to worship Jesus. You don't work for your boss, you work for Jesus. And so when no one's watching, you can have integrity because it's for Jesus. When you have that project and you know that you could do it one way and get the easy way out or you can do it to the glory of God a different way, you do it for Jesus. You serve heartily as unto the Lord. Think of Daniel. In Daniel chapter six, the Bible says that Daniel, let this be us, He distinguished himself above his contemporaries because an excellent spirit was in him. This is how we reach our community. Proclaim the king, but live the kingdom. They look on at your life and they go, why why are you pursuing excellence so much? And now, listen, they don't just see our light, but they also taste our salt. They taste the way we're living. And they're led, Psalm 34, it says, to taste and what? See that God is good. Through the way that we serve, through the way that we live. The nine to five gospel. So my heart and my hope is that we as a church, we wouldn't just see the gospel as something that's intervening and affecting our lives right now. My prayer is that as we worship God now, we respond to him as a God who fills our lives and transforms our lives from the inside out, every part of it. Amen? Let's stand together.